You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, it is still the month of August. This is your last opportunity during the month of August to get my August 2023 special report. It is titled Cash Strategies. The August special report contains cash strategies to consider for today's economy. And when you go to requestyourreport.com and request the report, I'll be happy to not only send you the report, I'll also include a copy of my best-selling revenue sourcing book, as well as a copy of the best-selling book, The Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. The report, the two books, all available to you at no cost. Consider it a second opinion. All you need to do is go to requestyourreport.com and let me know where to mail the box of information, and I will be very glad to do so. Again, the website to get the report and the two books is requestyourreport.com. Joining me once again on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm going to get Carl's take on the stock market, on the housing market, and the role that federal deficit spending plays in inflation. You won't want to miss Carl's comments on today's program as well. So, Today, I want to talk to you a little bit about the fact that it seems that we are in an everything bubble. Now, on last week's program, I talked about the fact that the U.S. consumer, based upon the data anyway, seems to be stretched to the point that the economy is now being affected. And soon, I believe that the economy will be very noticeably affected. Now, the U.S. economy is more than 70% dependent upon consumer spending. So when consumer spending gets constrained, when consumer spending drops, that means the U.S. economy begins to contract. And I believe that's what's happening. Now, when you look at the economic data, one of the signals that you want to take a look at is the conference board's leading economic indicators, often just referred to as LEI. Now, LEI continued its decline in July, falling another 0.4%, almost a half a percent, month over month. This is the 16th straight monthly decline in LEI, and it's declined 17 out of the last 18 months. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but let me give you a bit of a comparison that might have it make a little bit more sense. When Lehman failed at the time of the great financial crisis. LEI declined for 22 consecutive months. We are now 17 out of the last 18 months. Now, with the exception of the onset of COVID in early 2020, the LEI now stands at its lowest level since September of 2017. In fact, on a year-over-year basis, LEI is down 7.5%. Now, I have been arguing that a recession is inevitable. In fact, we may actually end up being in a recession at the present time when all the numbers are finally revised. So assuming I'm correct and assuming a recession becomes a reality, here's the question. Won't the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, simply reverse course and once again reduce interest rates? And won't that make everything Okay, again. Well, 
the opinions out there are not universal on this, but I happen to believe it's inevitable that they will try. But I'm very skeptical that they can be successful. Charles Hugh Smith wrote an interesting piece last week titled, No Central Banks Won't Save Us This Time. If you want to go to my website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you can look at the August 21 issue of Portfolio Watch, and there is a link to Mr. Smith's article. I would encourage you to check it out. Now, I'm in agreement with a lot of the points that Mr. Smith makes in his piece. He makes the point that the era of low inflation has now ended. Here is what he says, quote, the central banks are now perched on the horns of a self-inflicted dilemma. To boost flagging growth, they need to lower interest rates. But since they let inflation become embedded and geopolitics is jacking up real world costs, the usual tricks of dropping rates to near zero and flooding the financial system with free money for financiers also known as liquidity, will reignite still simmering inflation. Now, I have made a point over the past several years similar to the one that Mr. Smith makes here. Worldwide debt now stands at $305 trillion. By comparison, at the time of the financial crisis, worldwide debt was about $100 trillion. So worldwide, since the time of financial crisis, about 15 years ago, debt worldwide has grown from $100 trillion to $305 trillion. Well, what does that mean? It means that a deflationary environment now seems completely unavoidable. Of course, without the central banks creating currency from thin air since the financial crisis, debt levels would have never reached these nosebleed levels because Currency today is loaned into existence. If central banks would have simply allowed the deflationary environment purge the debt from the system at the time when debt was about $100 trillion, we would have already moved through this deflationary period. We would have experienced some pain, but the pain would have been much less than the pain that I believe lies ahead. So instead, we are now staring at a debt problem that is triple the size of the debt problem we had at the time of the financial crisis, and the financial crisis was caused by excessive debt. Now, Smith makes an interesting point. He said that central banks are now perched on the horns of a self-inflicted dilemma. Now, when he states essentially that this problem is self-inflicted by the central banks, I believe He is spot on. I couldn't agree more. When the deflationary climate emerges in earnest, I believe the central bank will shoot the only bullet they have left in the gun. They'll once again revert to currency creation, further igniting the stagflationary environment that, in my view, is now inevitable. Now, what is stagflation? Stagflation is inflation combined with economic contraction. It is inflation combined with economic contraction. In another word, it is miserable, and I believe that it is now inevitable. Now, Smith notes 
as I did on last week's program, that American consumers are getting crushed. And if you didn't catch last week's program, again, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The podcast version of the program is posted there. But American consumers are getting crushed. And as I noted at the top of this segment, that is exceptionally bad news for an economy that is dependent more than 70% on its health for consumer spending. Here's what Smith said, quote, the statistical gaming cannot hide the fact that inflation is still crushing wage earners. The statistical game is that inflation is measured year over year as if it magically resets every year. But it doesn't reset. All the inflation of the previous years is still present, burdening wage earners. Inflation builds on inflation. Now, I'll talk more about this in the last segment of today's program, but before we go to the break, and again, on the other side of the break, I will be joined by Mr. Carl Denninger, so you want to stay tuned for that. I want to remind you that you can get this month's special report titled Cash Strategies. The report contains cash strategies for today's economy, and when you go to requestyourreport.com and request the report, letting you know where to mail it, I'll also get you a copy of the Revenue Sourcing Book as well as a copy of the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. So again, just go to requestyourreport.com, and I'll be glad to send you all that information. I'll be back after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Many of you who are longtime listeners to the program recognize Carl as a prolific writer, and a commentator. His website is market-ticker.org, market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out, as I do frequently. And Carl, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you for having me on. Well, Carl, we uh, are just now recording this on Friday the 25th. This will begin to air on the 27th, so we have a relatively short time lag. The BRICS Summit in South Africa is just finishing up, and uh, I've not had a chance to research it in depth yet, but it seems that Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, Egypt, Argentina, and United Arab Emirates are now part of the BRICS coalition, and they seem to have a bit of a defiant attitude toward the United States and the U.S. dollar. What do you make of all this? Well, I'm not surprised. Uh, The... (laughs) You know, as, as I pointed out, when the whole Russia-Ukraine dust-up started, uh, how do you feel about the, the particulars of that war that's going on and, you know, who you want to hold responsible for the events that led up to it? The, the reality of it is that we sanctioned a bunch of entities that had absolutely nothing to do with going to war. Okay, I mean, it's one thing to sanction Putin and his you know, his cabinet, if you will, or to sanction, you know, the Russian government. Uh, the Russian government was, well, they're, they're waging the war, right? But we sanctioned a bunch of other people. And we did this in the name of, well, you know, these are oligarchs and they make their money in Russia and therefore we're going to seize their yachts and sanction their funds and everything else. And it made people stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, this isn't Iraq. This isn't some little rinky-dink, you know, nation, so to speak. Um, now, if I'm a manufacturer of goods or services in one of these other countries, and I have to 
take my trade settlement in something because I'm exporting my products outside of my country to other countries, uh, what do I want my payment to be in? And the answer for a very long time has been U.S. dollars. And the reason is not that we're a shining beacon of light on the hill. It's just simply that we have a more politically stable and more stable currency than the other options. And the person doing the selling is the one that gets to make the decision because they say, well, you pay me in this or you're not getting my stuff. And so that changed. Uh, and two things did it. One was the Ukraine and Russia dust up. And the second was the fact that our government during the pandemic put 50% on the federal budget in one year, which was an enormous inflationary impulse and something that the United States has never done before outside of the declaration of formal war. I mean, we, we certainly we did it, you know, with World War II. Um, well, yeah, we just got the, you know, the bejesus blown out of us at Pearl Harbor, right? So there's, you know, there's, there are times that you can look at something like this and say, yeah, okay, you know, it's, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of people dropping bombs on our ships. But that's not what happened in this case. We had a pandemic. The response to it was to do that. And then the pandemic waned. And was officially declared over, but the but the budget was not contracted back to its former size. And so if you're a foreign trade interest, you look at this and say, well, wait a minute, this is going to produce a crazy amount of inflation. Do I want to pay in do I want to be paid uh, in a currency that before I can convert it back uh, is going to to take a valuation hit? And the answer to that's no. And when you're dealing with international trade, the lead times are long. I I build a bunch of heavy equipment. It has to go on a ship. Uh, you you order it. I give you a price. I have to make it. I have to put it on the ship. The ship has to sail to wherever it's going to go. It gets unloaded. You get the goods, and then you pay me. And during that time in the middle, the value that you give me had better not change by enough in a negative direction that I can't make the next bunch of stuff. If it does, I'm out of business, but it's not because I'm a schmuck and I don't know how to run a company. It's because of an externality that I don't have any control over. So you have you have companies and, and governments that have rightly said, oh, this is not an acceptable situation. We're going to change it. And that's that's what they're doing. So, Carl, you, you, you know, you talked about the fact that, uh, you know, federal government spending in the United States, uh, you know, expanded at the time of COVID, but hasn't contracted. Um, talk about, if you would, for our listeners, the link between federal deficit spending at such a high level and inflation. Well, uh, that's that's what causes inflation. That's all of inflation. And so Milton Friedman famously said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Federal Reserve doesn't control the amount of credit admitted into the economy on a gross basis. Uh, to some extent, private banks do in that they grant loans. Okay. However, uh, if private banks make loans that are unpayable, then they eat them. And that contracts the amount of credit in the economy. <laughs> okay, I mean, if, if I give you twenty grand, if I give you twenty grand to blow on a credit card and you don't pay me, I'm out to twenty thousand dollars. That's deflation. That's deflation, right? So I mean, there, so there's a balance to this, and that if you do stupid things, it blows up in your face and you eat them. 
but the government doesn't have this constraint. And so when the government spends $6 trillion and $2 trillion of it is essentially created out of thin air in a $20 trillion economy, that's a 10% inflation rate. And that's it's an extra $2 trillion. You didn't make anything for the $2 trillion. They just invented it and handed it out to people. And during, you saw the, the, the wild-eyed, crazy side of this during the pandemic and that they were paying people $600 a week to sit at home and drink beer. Okay, well, those people were producing nothing, and yet they, you know, they were spending all this money. Well, the same thing happened when we, we got rent. We had rent moratoriums. We had student loan moratoriums. These people had debts, they part of their budget that they had to be paying. And all of a sudden, oh, I don't got to pay. Well, okay, I'm going to go blow that on whatever. Okay. Uh, well, that's inflation. That's demand and the ability to pay that is chasing supply. And people talk about the, you know, the distortions in the housing market and the fact that market's basically locked up right now. And they say, but there's so much demand and there's no supply. Well, that's a lie. Okay. Econ 101 tells you that demand and supply is, is how price gets determined. It's the price is the arbiter between those two things. But demand for something that you can't pay for is not real. It doesn't exist. I can demand a $400,000 house, but if I can't come up with the money to either buy or finance a $400,000 house, there's no demand for that $400,000 house. It doesn't exist. So, Carl, I've made the argument, and, I, and I'd like your comment, but I've made the argument that uh, we will not get inflation fully under control until the federal government gets its budget at least uh, under control to a lot greater extent. I'd like your take on that opinion. Do you agree? Do you disagree? And then secondly, what's the end game here? I I I'd, I'd spared myself watching the debates the other night, uh, but um, I don't think anybody stood up and said, if elected, I'm going to balance the budget. So so what's the what's the end game here? Well, Dennis, uh, remember, we had this you know, <laughs> the ECB back back when just before the 07, 08 blow up. Remember, we had this thing called BRICS. Mm -hmm. Right. And we had the pigs. Right. Uh, you know, Portugal, uh, Italy, Spain, Greece. Um, what did the ECB tell all of the ECB member states that they expected them to run a three percent primary surplus? Why? Because that's a primary surplus. Then you put in the social spending deficits and things like that. You end up with a mild deficit. Uh, which is a mild amount of inflation. Oh, gee, isn't that exactly what all the, the central banks say that they're trying to target, right? Is this, you know, two percent thing, right? Which, right. by the way, is nonsense. But that's what they say. And but I, they, I agree. They actually, nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, but they actually came out and they said you guys have to run three percent primary surpluses in your budget. Well, notice how nobody said a word about that for the last ten years. There hasn't been a single a single sentence where that has shown up, and yet it's absolutely true. So. Um, you know, Donald Trump was the one that put 50% on the budget in, in concert with Congress because the president by himself cannot spend anything. He has to have the appropriation come through the House and the Senate. Uh, but then Biden gets elected and he hasn't taken any of that back out. None of the candidates in the debate said they were going to take it back out. The opposition piece, softball laden pile of nonsense that Trump put up that was run, you know, the, the interview he did with Tucker Carlson that he, he they released right on top of the debate to try to steal some of the thunder from it. Uh, wasn't a word about it in there. 
All right. So yeah, we have we have a bunch of unserious clowns when it comes to this. And what you're seeing in other parts of the world is a, is a very justified pushback against that. So how does this affect the U.S. economy moving ahead? I mean, I, I believe that a recession is inevitable, probably imminent. We might even be in recession now. Doesn't this just exacerbate everything? Well, yeah. And, and you know, you now have Jackson Hole, which is on the table. And you've got people thinking that, you know, maybe Powell is going to throw another bone out there. Well, the Federal Reserve for the last 20 years has has played Pavlov's dog with the markets. And, you know, anytime you hear the grill sizzling, oh, boy, there's got to be a steak coming. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, that's how it is. And anytime that the fire of the economy starts to die down a little bit, here here comes the Federal Reserve with a with a you know, 10-gallon can of gasoline to throw out there, right? And that's been... That's been the pattern for the last 20 years. But Powell understands that when you have a 30% operating fiscal deficit, if you continue to do that, you end up with a fiscal collapse. Because you look at what's happening in the housing market right now, uh, you have a locked up market. And the reason is that the people who have 3% mortgages who refinanced during the during the COVID time, uh, they they cannot move except under extreme duress, because you can't take that 3% mortgage with you. The new one is seven. And oh, by the way, the price of the house has doubled. And so as a result, your your payment's going to go up by 40%. They don't have that. They, they just don't have the money. All right. So the only transactions that are taking place, I mean, cash transactions, a cash transaction. If I sell a bubble house and I buy a bubble house, uh, I haven't lost anything. Because I got an excess amount of money for what I sold, and I paid an excess amount of money for what I bought. And so those kinds of transactions can take place, and they are. But for the most part, in the single-family housing area, that's that's not the reality. Most people are you know, they're buying a payment. They're not buying a building. And in that part of the market is completely locked up. And then you have the insanity that went on during the pandemic in areas that were not locked down with the Airbnbs and the, and the other short-term rentals that have driven prices to the stratosphere. Uh, I happen to live in one of them. And what these people think they're going to get for these things is just flat out crazy. And, and traffic levels, I, I am sitting right now in a vacation place as we're recording this. And I can tell you right now, there's nobody here. Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, in, in other reports that VRBO revenue in at least the big tourist destinations is down like 50% year over year. So that, that is all starting to fall apart. Uh, Carl- well, well, think, yeah, think about what happens when you, when you paid a million dollars for something that, that, you know, can't possibly ever cap out and make the payments uh, when the revenue goes down by half. Yeah, that, that's where we are. So we are out of time in this segment. Uh, stick around because Carl Denninger is going to hang out for another segment. Glad you're with us today. We'll be back after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl's perspectives are are terrific. I would encourage you to check out his blog at market-ticker.org, as I do frequently, market-ticker.org. And uh, Carl, prior to the break, um, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, there's there's all these student loan moratoriums and payment moratoriums. And, and starting here in October, um, those moratoriums end and the payments will start. 
in a consumer spending dependent U.S. economy, isn't that just one more straw on the proverbial camel's back leading to recession? Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is the problem that you basically have with the economy is that production and price in particular price uh, has has reset for this idea where people uh, can essentially take another $20,000 line credit card and blow it without having to make any payments on it. And we spent three years at this. I mean, you think about how crazy that really is. Okay. Um, we've habituated the American public and the, the other side of it, especially the, you know, the, the, the bars, the restaurants, uh, the vacation places and things like this, but also, Good Lord, take a look, take a look at the price of a new truck today. Okay, I mean, I, I would really like to get a, a three quarter ton pickup, um, a work truck with vinyl seats and absolutely, I mean, absolutely stripped to the bone, fifty grand. What are these people smoking? <laughs> All right. Well, they're obviously, you know, I mean, as long as people are buying them, they're going to. Why would you not charge 50 if you can get, you know, or you put a little bit of tart on there, you know, so a little bit nicer interior, a little better paint. You know, it's not it's not plain white. Got a bed liner, got a few other. All of a sudden, it's $70,000. And, uh, you know, I look at it, I look at you people are on drugs. But as long as someone will sign for that payment coupon, which they can do when they don't have to pay their student loans, and they don't have to pay their rent. Well, well, why would GM and Ford and you know, still honest, not charge that. Of course they will. Uh, what happens when they have to start making those payments again? Well, uh, somehow I have a suspicion that I'm going to be able to get a uh, 2022 or 2023 three-quarter ton pickup for about $30,000 in another year or so because a bunch of these are going to get repossessed. <laughs> well, and, and when you look at delinquency rates on 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 on, on auto loans, uh, on on credit card debt, uh, delinquency rates year over year are up. You know, depending on the, the numbers, I've seen anywhere from you know twenty five to thirty five percent. Yeah, and this is just starting because the, the you know the student loan repayments have not restarted yet. Okay, so and and most of the other people are still running around thinking that you know this is just never going to change. And I, and honestly, I, I, I really would love to know. I mean, in Michigan, marijuana may be legal, um, but boy, whatever they're smoking, it ain't weed. <laughs> so, Carl, we talked about stocks and housing. You, you, you elaborated a bit on that in the last segment. I'd like to go there again because typically, when we enter a deflationary environment. Historically, stocks and real estate are the two asset classes that are most dramatically affected. What's your outlook ultimately for housing? How much downside do we see here in, in, in residential housing? And then uh, what's your take on where stocks go? Well, let me let me just put a, a marker on the ground here. Residential housing uh, over the last, now this is national. So in some places it's even crazier than this national in, in three-year periods up 40 percent in the index okay uh, to put some perspective on this in the run-up to the crash in 0708 it was up 14 percent and that was enough to produce the, what we had happened in 2008 2009 it's a 40 percent 
this time in less than three years. So the, all that's going to the bubble is three times as big using those numbers. That's right, and that's all going to come back out plus a little more. And so, would I be surprised to see fifty percent drawdown? No, not at all. Uh, would I be surprised to see a fifty percent drawdown in equities? Uh, actually, that's on the low end of my expectations because equities are subject to more leverage than residential housing. The bigger problem, though. Uh, from a standpoint of fiscal sustainability is that this the work from home paradigm that got embedded into everyone's mind during the pandemic, uh, companies are trying to reverse this to some extent. It's not just firms that want this reversed, it's cities. And if you take a look at all those nice skyscrapers without offices in those buildings, um, what happens to their property tax revenue? And oh, by the way, that's how they fund all their city services. So you've got the retail in those towns. You have all of the other services, police, fire, everything else. Um, there is a huge crunch coming. And how far it goes, uh, well, you know, we overshot terribly on the upside. I expect we're going to overshoot terribly on the downside on this as well. Um, I, we may be on the cusp of this beginning. There are plenty of people who say that, you know, once again, Jerome Powell and the Fed will come to the rescue. I don't think so. I think Powell is well aware of what happens if he allows this to continue. We have people who cannot afford uh, to, you know, to, to buy basic rental housing. I, some of the distortions I see in, in tourist areas, I'm in one right now, are just crazy. I mean, everybody that's working here is an H2B visa holder. And these guys have figured out a cartel. They say, well, you know, college kids won't take these jobs. Well, the reason is there's nowhere for them to sleep. They used to, you know, do two to a, to a, a cruddy hotel room that was a hundred bucks a week. And, you know, so, okay, that was, that was kind of like a dorm, right? A cinder block dorm room. Um, no, that's not how it works now. Now these guys have figured out a cartel kind of situation where they recapture a huge percentage of the wages by hot racking them in, in these same crappy hotel rooms. There's not two people in there. There's five. And so, you know, they say, well, the Americans won't take those jobs. Well, no, they won't take that job when they pay it pays minimum wage. But at the end of the day, after you get the recapture, the person who is paying you is getting back 80 percent of the wages and they have 25 bucks at the end of the week left. No, they won't take that job. Nobody in their right mind would take that job. So what are we doing? We're importing foreigners to do it. So, Carol, I want to go back to uh, what we've seen earlier this year. I mean, when you when you look at history and, and you look at what happened during the Panic of 1837, prior to the Long Depression of 1873, 1933, those deflationary time frames were preceded by banking failures. And already this year, we've seen Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic Bank, Heartland Bank. Uh, to my knowledge, there's four already that have needed uh, bailouts. Uh, is there more on the horizon? And is this the canary in the coal mine again? Well, maybe. Um, those those failures, uh, SVB in particular, and Signature, uh, which was the other one, uh, both were, were doing wildly uneconomic, unsound things. They should have been closed years earlier. And and had no flexibility in their mix. Their business was extraordinarily concentrated, which is a recipe for disaster when something goes wrong. And it did. Um, how badly does that infest 
the rest of the system today? And I and I think the answer is not as badly as it used to prior to those 708 uh, debacle. I don't anticipate failures of, of banking institutions such as Bank of America or, or Wells Fargo, even though with all the things that Wells Fargo's pulled over the years and as many scandals as they've been involved in, they should have been put out of business a long time. But, but that has nothing to do with their financial stability. It just has to do with how they are as business people. I don't see it going there. What I do see, though, is at the commercial level and at the business level, I see you know, the, the massive massive wave of bankruptcies of, of entities and individuals that have gotten way out over their skis. And this is uh, this is inevitable at this point. I don't see how you get out of it because at the end of the day, uh, how, do, how do you sell $50,000 trucks when nobody has $50,000? Well, and Carl, when you look at uh, just, just bankruptcy numbers as far as corporations are concerned, um, I think uh, corporate bankruptcies so far in 2023 are higher than at any point since 2010. So, I mean, arguably that's starting. Yeah, and it's but what you have so far is is much muted compared to you know where we are because the, the contraction that has to happen within the federal government spending. I mean, you think you think about a 50 percent operating deficit. Okay, it, the government has to either stop spending a third of the money it spends, or it has to raise taxes across the board to cover that 30% hole. Well, neither one of those is going to be very politically popular, right? So, I mean, how, how are you going to close that gap other than by force? And the force comes when the economic contraction takes hold. And then the other problem with that is if you try to raise taxes to do this, um, well, as the as the you know the tax tax burden goes up on people, that forces more bankruptcies. Well, you don't get anything from someone who's not working, right? They don't pay any taxes, so there is a compounding effect that that folds back into the government as well. And I, I, you know, you can look at just the mathematics of this and say this is where the balance is, but that's ignoring the fact that as that contracts, revenues also go down at the government level. So I, I think this is going to get a lot deeper than most people would think are going to be necessary to restore balance. Well, and Carl, tax revenues are falling at this point already. And, and you know, in my view, that signals that we, you know, we might already be in a recession. Yeah, that, you know, that there's a there's a high, a high frequency data sequence uh, that, that comes in very rapidly, which is payroll tax collections, right? And it used to be that you filed those, if you're a small business, they went in quarterly. Well, now they go in with every pay period. So this is extremely current data. This isn't lagged by you know six months or whatever have you. And those numbers are down. So for all the people that are saying that employees are making out like bandits, well, you know what? Uh, if you're earning money, you're not paying those taxes, you know, in, in April 15th. Okay, that's being withheld from your check and it goes into Treasury the next morning. Uh, that is in decline. And so the idea that we have this roaring economy, I, I don't care what the BLS puts out in terms of employment numbers and supposedly, you know, hourly earnings and things like this. Um, if I'm earning a paycheck, I'm paying taxes. They're going into the government every, you know, every week, every two weeks, whenever I get my check, uh, those figures are showing a decline. And that is real data and you can't game it. Well, my guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger, 
Carl's website is market-ticker.org. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. And uh, Carl, always a pleasure to catch up with you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your uh, time away. Uh, thank you for joining us on your on your vacation to uh, give us your perspective. And I'd love to have you back down the road. You bet. Anytime. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today. And thanks again to Mr. Carl Denninger for joining me on today's program. It is August, which means it is your last opportunity to get the August special report titled Cash Strategies. The report contains cash strategies for today's economic environment. In the report, we talk about leveraging your cash for an emergency expense. Uh, we talk about how to determine the safety ratings of your bank, or at least one way to do so. And when you go to requestyourreport.com and request the report, I'll also be happy to send you a copy of my revenue sourcing book, which contains a retirement planning strategy for today's environment. And you'll also get a copy of the little black book on social security maximization. The entire box of resources will be sent to you free of charge. All you need to do to get it is visit requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. As I concluded the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that American consumers are really getting crushed. And I referenced a piece that Mr. Charles Hugh Smith wrote where he talked about the fact that inflation doesn't reset every year. When inflation goes up year over year, the prior inflation that existed is still there. Now, Mr. Smith offers the example of residential rents. He says, quote, the financial media is slobbering all over itself and it's rushed to declare that rents are softening and rent inflation is dead. He said, does that mean the rents have fallen back to where they were in 2020? Of course not. All those gargantuan rent, increase, rent increases of the past few years are still strangling renters. Rents are still 20% higher on a year-over-year -year basis. Wages have not caught up with increasing rent. Smith notes that all the central bank-stimulated growth ended up in the wealth of the top 10%, not the earned income of the populace. The reality has finally entered the public awareness, and so central banks can't goose the wealth of the top 10% under the guise of stimulating economic growth. I agree with Smith. As I noted last week, rents now consume more than 30% of the average renter's income, while credit card debt now totals more than $1 trillion for the first time in history, and 401k emergency withdrawals are surging. Those three statistics are not symptoms of a healthy economy from the perspective of the U.S. consumer. And again, the U.S. economy is 70% dependent upon the U.S. consumer. Now, Smith, I believe, correctly notes that low-income workers are struggling while the top 10% of the group that has primarily benefited from central bank policy. Smith puts it this way, quote, the destabilizing extremes of wealth income inequality generated by central banks are now shackles on its policy options. All the central bank 
Trinks did was ignite a rocket under wealth income inequality that bled into the housing market, poisoning it by concentrating ownership of the housing stock in slumlord operations and the top 10% who scooped up hundreds of thousands of dwellings as short-term vacation rentals, as I talked about today with Mr. Denninger, investment properties, and speculative dumping grounds for their excess capital. So I believe, again, Smith is correct. And he published a chart using data from the Federal Reserve that makes his point perfectly. He notes that when you go back to the tech stock bubble that existed uh, from 1995 to 2000, when it popped, the share of total net worth held by the top 1% was about 28%. When the financial crisis hit and the bubble once again unwound, the top 1% held about 29.5% of all wealth. Today, I would call this an everything bubble. The top 1% hold almost 33%, almost one-third of all wealth. So at the time of the tech stock bubble, the top 1% held 28% of all wealth. At the time of the great financial crisis, when that bubble burst, the top 1% held 29.5%, today 33%. It illustrates the point perfectly that every time the Fed goes back to currency creation, the benefactors are the top 10%, or in this case, the top 1%. That means this everything bubble that I believe we're in, and I talked uh, with Carl Denninger today, who made a couple of interesting predictions. Uh, I guess uh, he said that residential housing and stocks, he would not be surprised if they declined 40 to 50%. I certainly would not be surprised by those numbers either. In fact, I expect that that will happen. It happened with prior bubbles that weren't as big as this one. So how can this bubble be any different? So this everything bubble, I believe, has resulted as a direct result of Fed policy. And now we're going to have to live through the popping or the unwinding of this bubble. Now, as I've often said here on the program, the what is easier to predict than the when. So when will this bubble unwind? The exact timing of a reset is difficult, if not impossible, to predict. But the numbers suggest the reset will once again have to occur, and it will be painful. If you have assets in stocks in traditional investments, I would encourage you to get this week's special report and all the bonus information. Again, the special report is Cash Strategies, and the bonus information is a couple best-selling books, the Revenue Sourcing book that contains a retirement planning strategy for the current economy, as well as the Little Black Book on Social Security Maximization. You can get all that information by visiting the website requestyourreport.com. And if you would like to go back and check out this podcast again or any of our other free resources, you can do that at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter is posted there. My weekly headline roundup newscast is posted there. That happens every Monday at noon. And also the podcast version of this radio program. So again, that resource site is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Thanks for tuning in today. I'll be back again next week.